0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work
1: on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women Join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Lara Zarrow. I'm the Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm here for today's show on executive search, and the art and science of matching talent to opportunity. Our phones are open at one 844 Wharton That's 844-942-7866. And if you have questions, you'd like to join in the conversation about maybe how to match your talent to some opportunities that are out there, we'd love to hear from you. So once again, that's one 844 Wharton 844-942-7866. You know, as I meet more people who work in executive search, I'm increasingly awed by both how deep and broad their expertise is, how much they understand about organizations, and the unique demands placed on the talent charged with ensuring the success of those organizations. My guest today, Jenna Fisher, is one of those amazing people. She's successfully completed more than 200 CFO searches in software, hardware, healthcare, retail, and consumer products over the last several years. She's going to talk with us about the trends she's seeing and help us think critically about the nature of careers for leaders, men and women, and the supply and Demand issues threatening workplace diversity. As I mentioned before, our phones are open and we'd really love to hear from you. So that's 1 844 Wharton, 844 942 7866. So Jenna Fisher is the is global corporate officer sector leader. Isn't that a long title? Shows you how important she is. Um, for the executive search firm Russell Reynolds Associates. She specializes in leading senior financial officer assignments and serving clients across various sectors. These have included tech, consumer, healthcare, and retail industries. Her clients have been Fortune 1000 corporations, middle market private equity portfolio companies, as well as highly visible pre-public venture capital-backed enterprises. She's an expert in providing counsel to boards as they prepare their organizations for CFO succession. Before joining Russell Reynolds Associates, She was a consultant with Bain & Company, where she advised private equity clients and the senior management of Fortin 500 Tech, consumer goods, and retail companies on a variety of strategic issues. She received her B.A., cum laude, in sociology from Rice University, attended Duke University Law School, and received her M.B.A. from the Wharton School, making her another one of our amazing Wharton alumni. So with that, I'd like to say, Jenna, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Great to be on. It's great to have you. So, Jenna, you have this wealth of business experience that came before you were ever in executive search. What made you make that leap? How did you land in executive search? Right. uh, Because uh, as I sometimes joke, most 18-year-olds don't wake up in the morning saying,
0: I'd like to be an executive search consultant when I grow up. (laughs) Exactly. It
1: wasn't on the questionnaire from my high school guidance counselor. That was for sure. (laughs) Right. My high school guidance counselor told me I should
0: be a social worker and maybe perhaps, you know, I sometimes joke that being a search consultant is like being a proverbial rabbi or priest to the (laughs) professional world. Um, But, you know, I've always loved professional services because I love solving problems and working with smart, ambitious, self-motivated people in heterogeneous industries. But I knew after having worked in law and management consulting that something was missing. And for me, it was human capital. And so search really represents the the juncture of professional services, but it's all about human capital, which is very exciting
1: and, and certainly no two days are the same. Absolutely. But how did you make that leap? Did the search firm come looking for you or did you search for the search firm?
0: I I guess it was the latter because when I was still at Bain, I was writing my essays about what I wanted to be when I grow up and, (laughs) um, and in talking to some mentors and folks with whom I worked a lot of them suggested that I would be great at something that was more human capital oriented. And I sort of thought, well, what is that? And somebody suggested search. And at first I had a bit of a pejorative view of it, just because I thought of these headhunters who call and harass me from time to time. That's not what I want to do. I don't want to dial for dollars for my career. But then I was assured, no, no, there's this whole other elite layer of search professionals out there. And, And so I started just networking. And over the course of probably a year or so, I met with folks that many of the top firms and kind of fell in love with the industry. And so I've been doing it now for over 15 years. And search is really an incredible profession because we get to work shoulder to shoulder, to shoulder with some of the most talented leaders in the world and one of the hottest areas, human capital.
1: Um, and so I, I, it's such a privileged role. I'm really uh, very fortunate. So talk to me a little bit about the nature of the kind of search work you do, because, you know, we use these terms kind of very loosely, sometimes interchangeably when we shouldn't. Um, The difference between headhunters, search firms, and the detail of search selection and placement.
0: Right. So here at Russell Reynolds Associates, where I've been for the, the bulk of my career, we have folks who focus on uh, myriad areas and industry specialties. My particular focus is on recruiting CFOs either, either into executive level roles or onto boards of directors for audit committee roles. And so that's really where I spend the vast preponderance of my time, again, across industries. But you'll find that in the search world, most of us have a particular area of focus or expertise that we we spend our time thinking about
1: so as you prepared as you've grown into this role you know let's just say you know you're a Wharton alumni so the CFO component of it we're not totally shocked about but mm-hmm. in particular this bridge between the CFO and and the role of people with related skill sets on the audit committees at the board level. Um, talk to, can you help us understand a little bit about the differences in those roles, but how they relate to your work in doing search?
0: Sure. So, um, you know, we, when conducting an executive search, that is pretty different from that of an, a board search. And the reason for that is often board members, as many of us No, are not employees. And so therefore, we can, quote unquote, discriminate, if you will. And I I don't mean that in a pejorative (laughs) sense, but you can be very selective about who you'd like, what kind of age, what kind of experience, what kind of ethnicity, what kind of gender. Um, All of those are really up for grabs. Um, Whereas, of course, when you're conducting an executive search, um, all the rules of the EEOC apply. And and so we need to be much broader in our remit. Um, We also, in an executive search, might talk to 100 people to ultimately recruit one person. But in a board search, we tend to take a rifle shot approach and really think through one person at a time. And so board searches tend to happen a little bit more in the dark of night where people don't even know those searches are ongoing, um, whereas executive searches often are, are
1: not as confidential in nature. Given how impactful boards are on the success of people like your CEO and your CFO, um where do you see the the lack of rules, particularly the EEOC rules, as a gift? And where do you see them sometimes as it might be helpful to have more structure around it?
0: Well, you know, I think one of the things that I've found over the last few years in search is that diversity and inclusion is the hottest topic in HR circles. And every single one of our clients is asking for a diverse slate of candidates. I think there have been many factors that have contributed to that, um, but certainly you know many companies recognize gosh if eighty percent of our consumers are women then maybe we need to have more than just one woman on our board representing what our brand means to consumers um, and so as that trend line has been activated it 's something that is very much forefront on the forefront I think the challenge is we talk a lot about the supply demand mismatch mm-hmm. and And so if you look at, for example, if you're searching for an audit committee chairperson, chances are you want somebody who is or has been a public company CFO to fulfill that. And if you look at the Fortune 1000, it's only 11% of that cohort is comprised of female talent, and many of them already sit on one board. And so you have to start to get creative around how do you define, quote unquote, the best? Is it somebody who's already done that role, or is there... Is there another place you look? Do you look for a a step-up person, somebody who perhaps can have other attributes they bring to the table, who can inspire and retain other women and help our organizations help women sort of see it to be it? Are there other things that become imperative or that also can be viewed as positive,
1: not necessarily just check the box? Jenna, I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because this comes up, I think, at all levels in all areas of business, where whether we're looking for um, people to participate in a panel at a conference, whether it's applicants for a leadership role within an organization or CEO or board roles, that we hear there aren't enough candidates out there. And sometimes we know, as you so acutely point out, if only 11 percent of the Fortune 1000 were women who comprise candidates that are suitable, then there really is a pipeline problem. Um, What about the ways that we're letting this talent slip through the holes in the pipeline, the leaky pipeline? Are there things that we should be doing to create succession models to help groom these women for these roles? Yeah, it's a great question and a really meaty topic. And one of the
0: things that I'm personally really committed to is getting women to 50-50 on executive teams, on boards. And I certainly hope that it happens in our lifetime. When I started at Russell Reynolds 15 years ago, one of the first things that I did was I started a women's CFO and board networking group. And in her first meeting, I remember there was sort of barely a quorum, maybe 10 of us assembled around a boardroom table. And now, 15 years later, there are hundreds of women all around the country who participate in these groups. And it's been so rewarding to see the demand for diversity and not just gender diversity, by Mm -hmm. the way, all kinds of diversity really grow as companies recognize the need for it. I still think that we need to continue to cultivate next generation talent. Um, One of the ways that I've seen this can be successful is by asking one more question. And what I mean by that is when we're sourcing for talent, which is one of the arrows in our quiver, if you will, Mm -hmm. for finding people on searches, I'll often get ideas. And as I'm looking at the list, it, it tends to be sometimes the usual suspects. And I'll say to the person, gosh, this has been a really helpful list. But are there any women or underrepresented minorities that you've worked with in the past who you also think might be somebody I should maybe reach out to as part of the search? And 85% of the time, the person will say, oh, gosh, yes, you know, I used to work with this woman, and she's great. I've lost track of her, but here's her name. You know, Use my name to, to call her. She was really wonderful. And that's one way that we can get at it. And, and one other thing I would just add is I will say that I've seen. I just had a woman in my office last month, so this is very fresh in my brain. But there was a woman in my office last month who I was trying to get to play on a CFO search, and she hadn't yet been a public company CFO, but she really had checked the box on nearly every functional area. And really, I felt like it was her time to put a wrapper around it and (laughs) and go do this. And she was sort of trepidatious about it. She said, Gosh, you know, this sounds really appealing, and I think I'd really like that company, but I've never sat in the treasurer seat before. And and I said, you know what? No candidate is ever perfect on any search, because even if they look perfect on paper, chances are they're probably not perfect <laughs> right. in some way, right? And you've been in situations before where you didn't know all the answers, and you really have to sometimes just have to believe in yourself and go for it. And so I find myself sometimes being the cheerleader with <laughs> people who are kind of a little self-doubting. And, and, I, and I do think that you know, maybe some people hold themselves back, but um, I would say if you have mentors and people you trust and respect who are saying, hey, I think you're ready for the next step, and. Then- then you Maybe you go should for take.
1: it. By the way, the, the cheerleader that I'm talking to right now is Jenna Fisher. Um, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. Jenner's, Jenna's the global corporate officer, sector leader for executive search firm Russell Reynolds. And if you've got a question about something that we're discussing, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. Whether it's about how to identify talent in your midst or how to find the courage to step up when you're called upon, um, you can reach us at one 844 Wharton That's 844-942-644. Seven eight six six. So Jenna, not surprisingly, in what you just shared with us, there's so many things I need to unpack. So I'm going to try and do them one at a time. So one of the things I find unbelievably insightful and intriguing is what you said about, let me ask one more question. Because in that, what you're making me realize is that without being asked to dial in on the diversity question, we may not think of candidates who are relevant but that by asking somebody to zero in it it stimulates their thought processes in a different way Am I understanding this well you are and I think it's it's human nature most of us tend
0: to interface with people who who are most like us and because the finance world where I work is predominantly male oriented It's only natural that that would be on the top of most people's minds, people who are most similar to them. It's not that anybody is being malicious or uh, evil. It's really just human nature. And so I think asking that
1: question allows maybe a a
0: new part of the brain to be stimulated to think of ideas.
1: (laughs) What about asking those people? Um, like So let's say I ask Patty um, who she could recommend for a particular role on my team. And then I ask her again, I say, Patty, can you think of any women of color, any men of color, um, people that you know may not have made the list before um, that really come to mind? If she does, but they're not the right fit for the role, would it be appropriate for me to reach out to those people to say, do you know people? that would not otherwise come up on a search or or I may not be aware of. So can you probe the networks of people outside your network? Might that be a way to diversify our candidate pools? Absolutely.
0: And this is really, when you think about where we get people from on searches, there are three buckets. One is people we know who really fit the bill because we've spoken to them before and we know them well. The second is we always do a very thorough target list of companies, and we go through that and dot our I's and cross our T's from a research perspective to make sure we're covering off on all the usual suspects, if you will. And then the third is this this vector around sourcing, and it's a really imperative one because no two searches are the same. Everyone is bespoke, and one conversation will lead you to two others, and those two others may lead you to three others. and Sometimes you have to really
1: dig before you get to those out-of-the-box ideas, but sometimes they can be really great ideas. And in that digging, because I, I, we've talked about this on our own team, it's appropriate to reach out and say, I'm having a hard time finding diverse candidates. Can you help me look? We don't have to be afraid of saying that out loud, right?
0: No. Usually the, the turn of phrase I use is, my client is really focused on making sure that we're bringing forth a diverse slate of candidates. And we want to make sure we're being well-rounded in our thinking. And people are very
1: responsive to that. I love that. In fact, if any of you are tweeting out there, I think that's one to share around to the masses. By the way, we have a call coming in. So Kendra is calling from Georgia. Kendra, thanks so much for listening to Women at Work. What's on your mind?
0: Hi. So I'm actually, this is a great topic for today and timely for me. I finally made it to, like, the senior manager, junior executive, I think, level at my company. And I was
1: thinking about reaching out to an executive search firm, you know, really for advice and guidance. I'd like to ultimately get to the, you know,
0: senior-level executive, C-suite level in a firm. And I was wondering what the gaps might be between where I am and what they're sourcing and what they're looking for and the types of skills they're you know, able to place and farm. So do you think that's a good strategy or should I maybe do something else? I, I think you you raise a really important point, Kendra, and I think there is one important delineation I would make between an executive coach and an executive search consultant. So just to um, elaborate on that a little bit, an executive search firm, our economic model is that we work for companies. Companies are our clients, much like it would be for an accounting firm or a law firm or an investment bank. And our clients are the ones who pay us not insignificant sums (laughs) of money to go out and find the perfect slate of candidates for them. In the process of that vetting and search, we do touch candidates and we do try to impart wisdom and advice to them, but that is not our economic model, if you will. If you are looking for more fine-tuned advice broadly in your career, not specific to a particular opportunity that a search consultant might be looking for, I would advise you to consider, consider looking at a coach. Many of my candidates and clients have used executive coaches. They can be incredibly insightful, thinking about 360 feedback, how others might perceive you. One of the things that has stuck in my mind from an executive coach that I know well is all of us, if we overdo our strengths, can be weaknesses. And so that often tends to be folks' Achilles heel as they think about climbing the corporate ladder. Don't overdo what you do really well. Um, And so that might be one thing that you potentially explore. One other thing that I've heard some of my clients and candidates have done quite successfully is finding somebody in their organization who's really well-networked, who is very respected and thought highly of, and going to them and saying, hey, would you mind giving me some candid feedback after this next meeting we have together? I'd love to get your thoughts on how am I showing up, anything I could do differently. And if you can find a really direct person who's willing to give you some honest feedback, that can be an important and helpful piece of advice as well. Thank you. That, that's very
1: helpful. I had thought about using the coach as well. So that, that's the round I'll take. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Good luck to you, Kendra. And Kendra, thanks so much for listening and calling in. That really was a great question. If anybody else would like to join in the fun, Ask Jenna a question, you can reach us at one eight four four Wharton. That's 844-942-7866. And once again, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Jenna Fisher, Global Corporate Officers Sector Leader for the executive search firm Russell Reynolds. So once again, give us a ring, one 844 Wharton That's 844-942-7866. So Jenna, A, really appreciated. I think that was really great advice for her. Um, but I want to build on that question a little bit. So when somebody gets to the point where, you know, they've had the executive coaching and they've been making their way up through the ranks and they really are poised and ready for that C-suite role, what are things that in particular can help them get on the radar of search firms at that stage of their career?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, we always appreciate introductions from people who are already clients or deeply rooted in our network whose opinion we value. As you can imagine, many of us are the recipients of many, many more resumes and inbound emails than we right. could possibly respond to as much as we would love to uh, until there's a cloning device found out there for us. Um, but you know, if I have a client who says, gosh, you know, there's this woman or man on my team who is really a rock star and while I'd love to retain them, I also know they're ready for the next step and I just don't have that role available in my company as a for example. If I get that, of course, I'm going to spend time with that person and keep them on our radar for searches. I do think it's important to know that not every search we do is going to be, of course, a match for every person that we meet, and so sometimes I've had people whose resume has sat on my desk for a year and a half before they had a search that was applicable for me to call and say, I finally have one that could be interesting for you. So don't despair if, when you make contact with the recruiter if they don't have anything for you, because if you have
1: a strong background. Chances are it's just a matter of time. Yeah, so that's bringing up an interesting point that, A, ha- a lot, as usual, Jenna, lots of interesting points. Let's see if we can t- touch on them and not forget to <laughs> <and> move <laughs> past them too quickly. So one is that um, in order to connect with executive search firms, it sounds like your network is an incredibly important funnel into the firm because of how inundated the firms are by unsolicited resumes. Correct.
0: The other way I would say you could build your relationship with the Russell Reynolds of the world is to be a helpful source. Mm. As As I mentioned earlier, three vectors at which we get candidates, one of them is sourcing. And so if one of us calls you, call us back even if it's not for you, it helps start to build a relationship so that when we have something that might be interesting for you, you are on our radar. And so that's another way that is mutually synergistic
1: that can be beneficial. And it also sounds like this is a case where this is really about the long game. This is not a temp agency that you go to when you're in college to get a summer gig and you're employed within three days. Um, These are about long-term relationships and very careful, highly personalized fits. Is that fair to say?
0: That's absolutely correct and and very astute. And I would say that I sometimes will say that search is a bit of an art and science. And what I mean by that is, of course, we are going to recruit people and bring candidates to our clients who have certain technical competencies, certain boxes checked on their resumes, if you will. But equally, we as executive recruiters spend a lot of time and invest a lot of our energy in getting to know our clients really well so we know who is a fit in their culture who is not? What kind of change agent is needed for this specific role at this specific point in time? And that's the art of what we do. And so the more transparent and open you can be with us, it will allow us to find the right fit for you in return.
1: So you talk about being transparent and open, and I can absolutely see that in talking about what are your next goals, what are the skills that you're bringing, um, in talking with um Somebody who works in a similar field at GH Smart, she was talking about acknowledging that everybody has made mistakes, everybody has places that they're weak, and Mm -hmm. how silly it is to think that somebody's perfect or that no one ever made a mistake. How do you suggest that people address those the weaknesses or limitations as they're going through the search process? Well,
0: it's funny. One of the questions I like to ask many of my candidates is if there is a misperception about you at work, what is it and why? Mm. And it's always interesting to hear what they say. But even more interesting is whether or not they're self-aware enough um, and opened enough to be able to admit what that is. And um And so, look, you're not going to go into an interview and say, "Okay, let me just be honest with you. Here are the three things that I'm terrible at. That's not (laughs) how you open, right? But in the natural course of getting to know the recruiter, I think it's fine to say, you know, if, if you're asked the question, tell us about your least favorite job you ever had and why. Explain why you weren't a good fit for that organization or why that that boss wasn't a good nexus with your personality, make sure you do it in a way that does not come across as defensive, that is not blaming uh, the organization or the person, but rather, you know, frame it into a positive. I feel like I am my best self when I can be in an
1: environment that XYZ. And so I think having that self-awareness is really critical. So it's it sounds like there's two components to it. One is being self-aware about your own strengths and where you were mismatched in a pa- in the past. And that um perhaps talking about the places where you weren't as successful using the lens of it wasn't the right match or it was something i've learned and grown through are ways to navigate that in conversation is that fair is that useful i think it's
0: very very fair and i think going back to our earlier thread around look working with a coach potentially mm-hmm. having a 360 where you have feedback from myriad individuals with whom you work that can be really helpful in maybe bringing to light some of these areas that you you might need to shore up or or help reframe a perception that might be out
1: there of you so is it useful to go back to the coach as you're preparing for kind of high-level interviews and bring them into your life again even if you were coached say a year or two or three years ago Um, or is it something that once you do you don't need to do it again with that kind of frequency
0: depends on the individual, but I think a coach can be really helpful. I've seen people benefit a lot from working with a coach before interviewing, particularly for those of you out there who maybe you've been at the same company for a long period of time and you haven't engaged in outside searches and you haven't gone on interviews. It is a skill like any other. And with more repetition and more practice, you will get better. And um, sometimes You know, you don't have the time to dedicate to going and, you know, dating, quote, unquote, or interviewing at lots of different companies. And so you can do it in a much more efficient fashion with a coach.
1: That's fantastic advice. So while we were on break, Patty brought up something interesting that came up in one of her last searches. Um, There was a candidate who was rejected, but she wanted to reapply for another position. And she asked Patty how she could stand out. So our question for you is both from the side of the employer and the employee. Um, Is it okay to reach out and ask those kinds of questions, and how much information should you give out if you're the person conducting the search?
0: Mm, Great question. Well, it's interesting. I remember very early on in my search career meeting with a candidate with one of my partners, and after the interview, he and I debriefed, and... He said, what did you think of him? And I said, oh, I, didn't, I didn't think he was that great. And he said, don't ever say that about a candidate because there is a, there is a but for every seat I think was the <laughs> used, uh, to be indelicate about it because, frankly, lots of people are great, but they may not be great for a given search that we're doing. And so I remember when I was early in my career, I used to have a hard time making that call and telling the candidate, gosh, you know, that the client just decided to go in a different direction. But now it's a great way for me to build a relationship with a candidate because I can say, look, here are the things that ultimately were going on. Many of them have nothing to do with the candidate. Mm -hmm. It might be that they decide to promote the internal person because he or she is less expensive. Uh, You know, I mean, there really are so many reasons. And it allows me to build that professional intimacy with my candidates, again, so I get to know them better. I can sometimes provide beneficial coaching. And... I think you should absolutely expect if you expend the time and energy to go through a search process, you should get fulsome feedback from your search consultant with whom you're working so that you have a sense for what went well and what might you do differently next time. But do keep in mind that it's not always personal.
1: Sometimes it really is situational and has nothing to do with you as a candidate. And so you mentioned something in your answer, which is super helpful, um, about it's an opportunity to get some coaching. And so... Um, when, we're, when we are on the end of we're doing the hiring, and it's not in the context of having an executive search firm with people whose full-time jobs it is to be these kinds of professional matchmakers and diagnosticians, um, what advice do you have for us on how we can provide useful feedback to that curious candidate without overstepping our boundaries?
0: Right. I mean, certainly you wouldn't want to let on any confidential information. But typically what I find, you know, again, going back to the rubric around what does an executive search look like, we're probably speaking to 100 people between mm-hmm. sources and references and direct candidates to ultimately hire one person. That's all they're going to hire is one person. And so 99% of the people with whom we're speaking are not going to get that job. And so I think it's important to, to know that there could be so many different reasons. Usually, it's that they want somebody who has more experience or less experience, or they just feel like somebody's a better cultural fit, which is so esoteric and really <laughs> intangible in some way. Um, but I always try to share as much as I can without, you know, of course, breaching any confidentiality, but... Generally, again, it's it's something that is kind of outside the control of the individual because you are who you are. And I, I just had this conversation with a candidate last week because he was really disappointed he didn't get the role I was recruiting for. And I said, you know what, I really believe that things work out for the best. And even though you might have thought this was your dream job – you're going to have something else come along that's going to be that much better of a fit and just give it time
1: and, and so, I really do believe it works out so part of it isn't just about um, whether or not you give them direct feedback about where they weren't as strong as the candidate who is selected it's also about taking the time to be supportive and encouraging that just because they were they didn't get this one it doesn't mean that they're not going to get something else equally exciting
0: that's right and I think particularly for people who are not serial interviewees, if you will, Uh, people who haven't, maybe they've been at their current company for a decade. And this is pretty outside their comfort zone. I deal with a lot of introverts in the finance world, and certainly they don't spend their days seeking opportunities to interview for jobs for the most part. But, um, you know, it can feel awkward and you're really putting yourself in a very vulnerable position to, to go through this sort of process. But I try to turn it around and say, what did you learn from it? You know, I just had a candidate on a search And I had been really excited about introducing her to the CEO. And she came away and she said, you know what? It's a great company, but I realized the following about myself in going through the battery of interviews. I really want to work with a very seasoned CEO. This company happened to have a first-time, quite young, um, entrepreneurial CEO. And that was something that hadn't even been on her radar or on her checklist. And by going through the experience and doing the interviews, she realized this about herself, which was really beneficial, I think, for her. So try to think about your own takeaways and going through it and and use it as an opportunity to do
1: a little self-reflection. And so on either side, do the self-reflection, make time for the self-reflection, and also try and keep it in some perspective. Mm-hmm. So you were exactly. mentioning before that uh, sometimes those candidates may not get the role because it was given to an internal candidate. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about what are the trends you see around internal candidates? When are they preferred? When are um, they summarily rejected because we want fresh blood? And is are either of these, um, is one perspective healthier than the other? I think a really healthy
0: well functioning organization for the most part wants both i think you want people who know where the proverbial bodies are buried who carry that historical culture in the organization and you also want the infusion of new ideas and people who can take what they've done at other companies and transplant it into yours and so i think again every situation is quite bespoke but you you want to have a nice blend of the two in most situations We have seen here at Russell Reynolds an increase of internal promotions over the past several years, um, particularly with CEOs, where there's been a greater focus by boards of directors on succession planning,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: going through conducting assessments of your top team to see what are their strengths, what are their areas for opportunity and growth, and helping to give them those opportunities to prove themselves so we know whether or not they're going to be ready to take on the next job ahead of them. And, um, and so that's been very interesting to see as a, as a change. It used to be, if we were sitting here five years ago, I would say to you, yeah, you know, most companies will do succession planning for the CEO seat. Now companies are getting smarter about this, and they're doing it for other C-level executives and even further down in the organization.
1: So talk to me about the impact of that on and it, the relationship of that to how we diversify the C-suite. Because one of the things that we can see is that If we only look for people outside the organization who are, you know, there's the pipeline problem that you talked about before. How many seasoned CFOs are there to choose from to fill a new CFO role and also have that person um, hit one or more underrepresented groups? Compared to, is there talent within the organization that the organization has worked hard to identify, recruit, develop, and retain um, so that they're creating their own pipeline of underrepresented talent in? um, But then there's that schism of, do we escalate that talent that we've been, that's homegrown, um, or are we reaching in from the outside? Um, How do you help organizations navigate that?
0: It's a really interesting question. And in fact the data will show that if you look at the internal promotions, they do tend to be less diverse than external appointments. That's
1: interesting.
0: Yeah. Um but you know, I think really smart companies are realizing that they need to create cultures where, you know, that expression you gotta you gotta see it to be it. Mm-hmm. And you do need to have senior level women in particular And this, by the way, I think everything we're talking about also applies to underrepresented minorities. But I know the show is about women, that's where I'm (laughs) focusing. But but you do need to be thoughtful about who are the people, even at the director level, who we think are superstars, and how do we keep them on a path to success? And you know, I I speak on a lot of panels about how to "quote unquote" have work-life balance and how to manage it all. And and I don't think, for better or for worse, there's one silver bullet to assuring. Equality between the genders. I think it starts, frankly, at birth with really trying to uh, trying trying to give our young girls a sense of independence and and helping them be brave and, and strong and not creating false expectations of perfection. And and there's probably a different a different thing every step along the way from from birth until you know it, when you're in the the prime of your career that could be different points at which you might trip over or things you need to be watching out for and things that we as, as leaders and organizations need to be mindful of how we support people to help them mm-hmm. get over those hurdles. Um, but I do think, I mean, my, I, I am optimistic about the future because I've seen so much good change. And I do think that companies understand the need to do some, some really long range planning in this domain.
1: By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Jenna Fisher, Wharton alumna and global corporate officer's sector leader for the executive search firm, Russell Reynolds Associate. If you've got a question about something we're talking about, you want to talk about how to prepare yourself for the executive search process, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-788. 6-6. Six, six. So Jenna, I want to talk about the dark side of what you see. What are some of the biggest mistakes the candidates make when working with search firms? When are they getting in their own ways and what should we learn to avoid?
0: Absolutely. So I think that um, there, there are two ways I, I would unpack that question. One is just a mistake that people make and I think women are perhaps more prone to make than men. And then there's a mistake specific to search firms. I'll, I'll take the the latter first. Um, In working with a search firm, again, going back to our economic model that I described earlier, know that we are working for our clients who are the companies. And so while we want you on our radar and we appreciate your reaching out, I have had people become almost belligerent trying to get on my calendar. And I, you know, unfortunately would not have a job to do if I met with every single person who sends me a resume. And so, do know and trust that if you are a great candidate for something that we are working on, we are taking note of your interest. We are putting you in our database. We are looking at your profile and we will certainly reach out to you. Um, If we can't meet with you, it's because we probably don't have anything that we're working on that is quite right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, people who who sort of stalk us end up (laughs) up not doing themselves a service. Um, So that's, that's, one. I would say the other way that I interpret your question is, you know, a mistake people make is, um, and this is brought to my mind because I had a woman just a couple of weeks ago here in my office who had been introduced to me by a former colleague of mine. She had a Stanford Business School classmate of hers who was an incredibly impressive individual, had had a great career, but she'd been out of the workforce for about 12 years. She, At the time of having her third child, she stayed home with her kids. And she wanted to get back into it now because her kids were off in school and her husband and she had gotten a divorce and she needed to work now. But she was sort of devastated because she felt like she had missed out on the biggest earning potential years of her life and she was nervous because she didn't know she could ever recapture the income from those lost years. And so, you know what and I've seen lots of people like that come through my office, and it's hard as an executive recruiter because no matter how talented you are, our clients are paying us a lot of money to find, again, the perfect person on paper or close to it. And for somebody who hasn't worked um, in many years, it's hard for us to recruit that person. And so to those people, I say, manage your network and work your network to maybe get a consulting opportunity that could parlay itself into a full-time job. But when I meet with younger women, I say, you know, even if it's hard try to stay in the workforce, even if it's part-time, because having that connectivity really does pay dividends in the long run.
1: And this is, um, you're bringing up, once again, a bunch of really important points. So one is that um, when when women do step out of the workplace, the impact to our total lifetime earnings, to our Social Security, to our potential salary, and our career trajectory when we return, the impact, the negative impact is enormous. And so if it's a choice we're making, we've got to be mindful that we're making that choice. But that if our aspirations are to um, be in the C-suite at some point. Taking significant time out can really derail that, and we've got to then get creative about how to get back on board. Is that a fair way of summarizing it? Absolutely. And so in that process of re-entering, we've talked about it a lot here on the show. We talk about it with our alumni, and it's exciting to see where there are organizations who are taking re-entry seriously and creating opportunities. Um, And... I see women trying their hands at different things. So I'd love your sense of what you see as being the useful ways to enter and then useful ways to pick up that kind of, to ramp up speed again, to increase your trajectory. So if you could talk about the difference between volunteer work and consulting work and how to migrate from one into the other and how search firms look at these things.
0: Yeah, I would say by and large... um Volunteer work, whether it's the board level, working on a, a nonprofit board, for example, or working in a, even in a leadership role in an unpaid kind of role uh, organization, they generally don't get you as many points in the for profit world mm-hmm. um, as working even as a consultant in an organization. And so, my general recommendation to folks who are looking to re enter, and, and by the way, I mean, I, I I don't think it's fair that the world looks at it this binarily. (laughs) But unfortunately, right now, that's kind of the the world we're living in. Maybe that will change. I'm sure it will over time, which I think will afford more optionality to both men and women. But um, I think getting into a company and working in some sort of consultant role is the best thing you can do to get name brand recognition and more um, recency of experience on your resume. And you know, be prepared to go in at a lower level perhaps than where you left if you've been out for, mm-hmm. for a while. There are some organizations that are working arduously to try to promote women and get them back into the workforce, which I commend, and I commend companies that are looking at this talent because, gosh, I mean any stay-at-home mom can probably tell you how, how much you have to solve multiple equations <laughs> in, in parallel and have to multitask and be super efficient to get things done, and I think those women will be incredibly loyal employees. Um, but we're, we're changing only slowly, I think, in that domain.
1: You know, as you talk about changing slowly, it, it makes me, I want to, um, I'm curious about how you've seen change through the arc of your career. Um, in particular, the if you could talk about what you see as the shifting patterns in how boards in particular are looking at diversity and inclusion as they're bringing in CEOs.
0: I've definitely seen it become, I mean, it is, when we poll our board member clients and ask, what is most on your mind? What is the hottest topic? What is the thing that you lose sleep over at night the most? Far and away, lack of diversity uh, is the number one issue um, that we see. And so I Nearly every client that we have, as we're going through and talking to them about what they're ideally looking for in either an executive search or board search, they talk about wanting to be able to see a diverse array of candidates. And so and that's, that's much more of a, a push than a pull relative to what it used to be. I used to always have a diverse slate of candidates just because it was something that I thought was important. personally. Right. <laughs> But now it's, um, it, it's, it's not even – it used to be you have to have, would have to show data around how the most diverse boards are also the most highly performing ones. And, and now everybody's kind of gotten religion around that. Um, now the challenge is where do you get creative in, in the nooks and crannies when the perfect purple unicorn <laughs> candidate is not presenting right. herself? Um, what do you trade off? And again, I think it goes back to redefining what is the best. You know, how, do, how are the, the different vectors in the search? How are you going to stack rank them in terms of what's most important? And, um, and we, I've had searches that started off for boards as diversity searches. And after meeting a whole host of folks, they've said, you know what? We're going to go with a non-diverse person, but thank you very much. We feel really, really great that we got to see the talent out there. And then I've had other searches where it wasn't even part of the equation, and they ended up hiring a diversity candidate because that was just – The best again, in quotes, person they met um, without even having a diversity requirement. Um, But they so,
1: yeah. But so they got themselves there. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM One Eleven. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Jenna Fisher, global corporate officer, sector leader for the executive search firm Russell Reynolds Associates, um, and also cherished Wharton alumna. Um, So, Jenna, in part of what you're describing about this idea of you know how do you find the best? Um, I wonder if part of what you're talking about is how we expand our notion from the idea that there is only one candidate that meets all of our criteria um, to how do we find the right person for us now? And that by broadening our definition of what that person could be, we not only can diversify the slate of candidates, but possibly bring in assets that we didn't know to look for.
0: Absolutely. I I have a client right now. It's a large technology company. They only have one woman on their executive team and um, she's going to retire. And it's really important to them to find a diverse candidate to replace her because they know that not only does she have a unique perspective, which is really additive to the conversation, but also she's an inspiration to probably literally thousands of employees Mm -hmm. in their company. And so the virtuous cycles that that creates in the organization as they think about, gosh, how do we recruit, attract, retain these incredibly challenging engineers that we long for? How do we think about creating the kind of culture we want to have as an organization that will embrace and be really um, fostering of the right kinds of of environments um, to keep these these talented women on a path to success for themselves and frankly, selfishly for the company. And so I think you really do have to broaden the aperture for what the best is, and it's, it's very case-by-case specific.
1: So in as you're working with companies to try and get them to do that, um, it, what's the dynamic that happens? Because um, this is something that I see happening in organizations at every single level. Um, how do you widen your notion of what's possible and also recognize that the criteria that you're using to select the best candidate for this role may not be you know, absolute and comprehensive in its brilliance? How do you work with people to get them to see that there are other options?
0: Well, I think, you know, usually when we are conducting a search, we will take a pretty analytical approach to it. And we'll have several different competencies, both technical as well as more personality driven, let's say, more intangible that we'll look toward. And we will create these grading rubrics that will help us visually see where are candidates strong, where are they weak. Again, going back to what I said earlier, there is Sadly, no such thing as a perfect candidate. None of us are perfect as people and you will probably never find somebody who checks every single box. Um, But in framing the both tangible and the intangible and making them readily apparent for the hiring manager and and those who are on the the jury panel, as I call it, um, it does help to reframe the conversation.
1: So I have a question, actually, to jump way back to your own virtuous cycle. When did you start to tune into um, the power of considering diversity differently and the different things that women could be bringing to the table?
0: Well, it goes way back, Laura, because when I was a sociology major at Rice as an undergrad before I went to law and business school, my honors thesis was on the differential in performance between boys and girls in math and science, and What I found, I guess now maybe it wouldn't be shocking, but at the time I thought it was sort of shocking, was that the only statistically significant reason that girls had a self-perception that they were not as good as boys were in math um, had to do not with IQ, not to do with actual performance in mathematical achievement exams, but it had to do with two things, self-confidence and self-efficacy. So girls who were more likely to agree with statements such as, I can be anything that I want to be when I grow up. Or, if at first I don't succeed, I'm going to keep trying until I get it right. People who agreed with those statements fiercely were much more likely to be successful. And I realized at that point in time that kind of perception is reality. And, <laughs> um, and you know, there's something around self-confidence um, that, and I don't want to make it just a female issue, but... I think that it's something that we all can sort of reflect on and and say, am I giving myself the same benefit of the doubt that I would give to somebody else? And so from a very early age, personally, I saw that differential. And so I've applied that going
1: forward into my work. And um, it's been really rewarding. And you've brought us to hear. It's us here today, even at the beginning when you're talking about, you know, there are women candidates who may be nervous. Um, Once again, that message of be self-confident, believe in themselves, and that they can figure it out can be the thing that closes the gap.
0: Yeah, and I would say just one more thing that I I see quite often. There's a lot of chatter and talk about work-life balance. And I think that part of the biggest challenge to being successful in an executive role is really mental. It's knowing None of us are ever going to do everything we need to accomplish on any given day. And work-life balance is not achieved on a daily basis or even a weekly or maybe even monthly or yearly basis. (laughs) So be kind to yourself and remind yourself that, you know, I think that perfection is not perfect. And give yourself some degrees of freedom to Leave
1: something on your to-do list for tomorrow. It'll be there waiting for you. Speaking of that, Jenna, we have to leave the rest of this on our to-do list because we are running out of time. Thank you so much for joining us on Women at Work. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.